Well, we're going to have a look at Amos together. Um, so if you have a Bible, if you turn to Amos, you'll find it is Daniel, uh, Jose Joel, Amos Obadiah. So on the church Bible, we'll find this on page 645. So if you have a church Bible, do look at page 645. And we're going to read the whole chapter together. Uh, Amos chapter 3. And we're going to have a quick look at that. Uh, together this morning. So Amos chapter 3, beginning to read at verse 1. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your sins. The two walk together unless they have agreed to do so. Does a lion roar in a thicket when he has no prey? Does he growl in his den when he has caught nothing? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when the snare has not been set? Does a trap spring up from the earth when there is nothing to catch? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear. The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountain of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression of her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord who hoard, plunder, and loot their fortresses. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun the land. He will pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saved from the lion's mouth, only two leg, two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. Those who sit in Samaria on the edge of their, edge of their beds and in Damascus on their couches. Hear this and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Let's pray together and then we're going to have a look at this uh, together now. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that you have given it us so that we might know you better and might know how best to live for you. Father, we recognise that there are passages which are hard to understand and some which seem quite negative. But Lord, we also know that your word is true and we need to understand all of it and that we are able to know more of you through it, uh, even through some of the most difficult passages. Father, we thank you for what we've just read and we pray that we would learn from it Uh, And Lord, that this would inspire us to be more grateful for what we have in you and to love you uh, from all of our hearts and all of our being. I pray you give me wisdom as I speak and that we would honour you this morning. Amen. I wonder, what does it feel like when somebody turns against you? Have you ever had someone turn against you? I think there's two main things that we'd be concerned with when someone turns against us. One is how powerful that person is. 
Are they going to be a threat to me if they're now my enemy? But more important than that, the other thing we might worry about is, do I value the friendship or the relationship that I have with this person who has turned against me? And will I miss that? Now, depending on how you feel about those two factors, there are four possible outcomes of how you will respond if somebody turns against you. Outcome one, if it's somebody who we wouldn't consider to be valuable in our lives, and somebody who is powerless to hurt us, well, we might even think it is funny for somebody like that to turn away from us. Think, for example, Dennis the Menace making an enemy of his next-door neighbour by ruining his garden. The frame shows the snarling neighbour shaking his fist and wringing out his flat cap as Dennis and Nasha run away with big grins and a speech bubble saying, ha-ha, in bold letters. His neighbour is powerless to do anything, and Dennis just does not care about his neighbour enough to be bothered. He has made an enemy, and it doesn't affect him. Outcome two. We could really value somebody, but they might still not have the power to do us any harm. But we would be sad if they were to turn against us. We've all experienced misunderstandings between friends and family. We've had people who we value and trust who have turned against us whether because of our actions or their perceptions, and that is really sad. Outcome three, it might be that you make an enemy without regret. You might not care for the other person's approval or friendship, but you know that you're doing the right thing by making an enemy of them, and yet because of the power of your enemy, you fear the consequences. So think here of Winston Churchill, making it clear that he would not make peace with Hitler. There's no remorse in that. He did the right thing, but it was scary. Outcome four, worst of all, making an enemy of somebody who you value and who also has the power to hurt you. A spouse, a child, an employer. What a terrible thing when somebody who you really want to be a friend and an ally, somebody who has the power to destroy you, turns against you. I wonder which of those above four options the people of Israel would have felt when they heard verse 1. Hear this word, the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. Some of the people may have disrespected the Lord so much that they would laugh. Others may have understood the seriousness of their situation and been rightly terrified but hopefully there would have been those who would be terrified of the consequences of making an enemy of God but also more importantly filled with grief maybe even with that grief outweighing their fear to really drive home the seriousness of what is being said here the Lord addresses the people of Israel in a very specific way against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. He is reminding them of who they are. They are his people. He is reminding them of who he is. That he is their God who has saved them from slavery and blessed them abundantly. Any picture that we can imagine is trivial by comparison. But to try and illustrate what this is being phrased, 
Imagine a boss saying with authority, don't forget who pays your wages. How dare you work against me? Or a mother rebuking her daughter with agonised passion. I gave up my career for you. I've endured physical pain for you. I have sacrificially loved you. And yet you treat me like this. A ruler condemning his subject. I have provided safety, security, peace and prosperity. And yet you have committed treason against me. Combine all of those together and multiply them by infinity. And you get a a sort of inclination, a flavour of the significance of what God is saying here to his people in this phrase. Verse 2 continues. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. The Israelites have a privileged position, and yet this position is something they have spurned and rejected. They have disregarded their birthright. They have rejected their privilege. And in, in, in doing so, they've also uh, not done a good service to the world because they were to be the nation through whom all other nations would be blessed. I know today we're almost conditioned to see privilege as a bad thing. We say things like, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and we mean that as a bit of a slur, don't we? But actually, we need to be careful when we say things like that, because the truth is, we are all accountable for the privilege that we have. And that's probably the reason why most of us don't want to admit that we have any sort of privilege. But look, look at the lives that we have. It's not the dark ages, is it? We don't face some of the problems that previous generations have faced. We have tremendous privileges to live in the time of history we do, in the country that we do. And we are accountable for that. The Israelites had the privilege of being God's people. And they rejected that good thing. As a consequence, in verse 2, God says, Therefore I will punish you for all your sins. Being God's people meant that they were privileged above all other nations. But it also meant that they were accountable above all other nations. We'll come back to that at the end. Verse 3, we are asked a question. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The Israelites are not walking with their God. To walk together takes agreement from both parties, but they are unwilling God has agreed to be their God. He has made so many promises to the Israelites that he will be their God and will bless them and give them victory. And yet, despite benefiting from these things, the Israelites refuse to walk with God. They are not willing to keep his commands. What a terrible thing. You know, we sung at the end of that verse that in response to God's love, How can we not give him our lives? And yet the people were not prepared to do that. They had seen God's love, but they, instead of giving their lives to him, turned away from him. Verse 4 asks another question. Does a lion roar when it has no prey? I have no idea. I don't know many lions personally. And unless... You live very close to Nosley Safari Park. I suspect you don't know the answer to this either. But from the text, it would seem that the lion would not roar if it doesn't have any prey. So perhaps a way we might phrase this to understand it today would be, does the cop end cheer when Salah doesn't score? Do you see what I mean? I think that's the picture we're being given here. There's a reason why the lion roar. 
And this metaphor continues, verse 5. Does a bird fall in a snare when there is no trap? Well, the answer is obvious. If there's no trap to trap the bird, well, it's not going to get snared. Israel are caught in a trap. They just don't realise it yet. When they feel the consequences of their rebellion, they should not be surprised and they should see the trap of their sin that they are caught in and repent. Verse 6, does a disaster come on a city that the Lord has not caused? We need to understand this in the context of the Old Testament. And God had promised the Israelites that if they followed his decrees and kept his commands, then they would have safety in the land. So Leviticus chapter 26 verse 3 says this, If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and their trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until the grape harvest, and the grape harvest will continue until planting, and you will eat the food you want and live in safety in your land. When the Israelites faced disaster, this should have caused them to remember God's promise to them and realise that the Lord was behind that disaster and that it was because of their sin. That should have caused them to examine themselves and to repent. And that theme is picked up in the next chapter as well, where God actually says he is causing problems for the people and yet they turn away from him all the more. Now it's important to say that that promise in Leviticus 26.3 I don't think directly applies to us today. In fact, the experience of the majority of Christians across the world has been persecution and pain. Jesus explains in Luke chapter 13 that bad things don't necessarily happen to people because they are worse sinners. He makes that very clear. But he also calls people, in the light of disasters happening around them, to examine themselves and to repent. So let me just read Luke chapter 13 verses 1 to 5. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with the sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. I think that passage makes it clear that when we see disaster, our response to disaster should be to examine ourselves because we know that ultimately we deserve the consequences of our sin, which is God's wrath. Now, do disasters happen because God is pouring out his wrath on people because they're sinners no the answer is no jesus says there no they are not worse sinners but all of us deserve to face god's wrath and so when we see problems in the world it should cause us to look to him and it should have caused the israelites to look to god but it did not verses 9 and 10 proclaim to the fortresses of ashdod and the fortresses of egypt assemble yourselves on the mountains of samaria see the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people they do not know how to do right declares the lord who hoard and plunder and loot their fortresses this is like calling the neighbor's children round to watch you tell off your own kids god is saying to the neighboring nations come and look at my people And how bad they are. They do not know how to do right. What a rebuke. The people who are God's, who have received the blessings and privileges of being his, 
The one chosen nature who received God's law and those who should know better than anyone else and yet they do not know how to do right. It isn't just that they do the wrong thing. They don't even know how to do the right thing. And this is not for lack of information. If they read the law, if they listened to the prophets that God had sent, then they would know. They don't know because they don't want to know. Because they don't care about God enough to learn about him and his commands. They refuse to listen to the words of the prophets who God has sent in his mercy. And they reject their warnings. If anyone is going to know how to do right, it should be these people. These are the people through whom God will bless all other nations. They are the ones who should be showing the world how to live under God's rule. And yet instead they are ignorant of God, apathetic towards him. And as a result, they are failing God and they fail the rest of the world as well. Today, if we are Christians, if we are the church, then we are the people through whom God will bless the world around us. We don't just have God's law, but we have his gospel as well. And yet, are we guilty of being ignorant of him? Are we apathetic towards him? Are we failing our God and the world around us by not taking seriously what the Bible teaches? Verse 12. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd saves from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites be saved. What's a graphic illustration of the coming punishment, isn't it? But also there is hope there that God will not totally destroy his people. He will preserve a remnant. It's not a glamorous passage of grace, but there is mercy there. Verse 15, just to finish before we wrap this all up. Verse 15, I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. The wealth of the rich will not protect them from God's punishment. There will be nowhere to escape. So how does this chapter apply to us today? If this was written to us now, verse 1 would be far more serious. Verse 1 says this, Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family who I brought up out of Egypt. The rescue of the Israelites from Egypt was great, but it was just a picture of what God would later do for his people. And what we know of God's salvation today is far greater. What could this be written if we would change it to write it to us today, God could say to the people who were dead in trespasses and sins, who were enemies of mine through their wicked works, but who I rescued by my own blood to bring them into my family and make them my holy people. You see, we are not just the people who have been saved from the rule of an oppressive Pharaoh. We are those who are saved from the rule of our own sin. And the consequences of God's wrath. Because Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin in our place. What a terrible thing it is when God's people turn away from him. 
And we as people who have the entire Bible and know so much more of God's revelation than the Israelites did are greatly privileged and very much accountable. The purpose of the gospel is not just so that we can escape God's wrath. The purpose of the gospel is to make us God's people. Verse 3. The two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet. God offers us his love even though we don't deserve it. He is willing to walk with us. Will we agree to meet with him? And if we will agree to meet with him, will we walk with him obeying his commands? Father, what we have read today is a passage which can seem depressing. And yet, Lord, we know that the reason why it is depressing is because these people neglected your love. Lord, we pray that this would be a warning to us not to do the same. Lord, we know that we do not deserve to be your people. We have broken your laws and we have fallen short of your standards. And yet, Jesus, you went to the cross in our place so that anybody who will put their trust in you can be forgiven. Lord, we want to be your people. We want to be people who are loved by you and who love you. And Lord, your word assures us that you do love us and you care for us. And that you've done everything that is necessary that we can be forgiven. So Father, we pray that we would not take your love for granted. That instead, we would come to you with our whole lives and we would allow you to transform every area of our hearts, our minds, our souls and our lives. Lord, that we would be your people living your way for your glory. Lord, we do not know how to do this. So we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. And Lord, you would help us to understand your word as we read it and give us a desire to read it. And Lord, we pray that more and more, day by day, you will be changing us into your image and using us for your glory. We ask these things in your name, Lord. Amen.